Good morning, dear saints and Lenten tide blessings. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. Today is February 15th, and you're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. On February 15th, the church commemorates Saints Onesimus and Philemon, figures from the New Testament who we learn about through Paul's letter to Philemon. Onesimus, a former slave, is remembered for his conversion to Christianity and his subsequent service to the church, that is, after fleeing from his master Philemon and being encouraged to return by Paul. Philemon, a Christian leader in Colossus, is celebrated for accepting Onesimus back not as a slave but as a brother in Christ following the Apostle Paul's intercession. This day highlights themes of forgiveness and reconciliation and the transformative power of faith in our relationships with one another. Now, this morning, our topic is going to be Deuteronomy chapter 7. Therein, God, through Moses, gives instructions to the Israelites as they are about to enter the promised land. God commands them to completely destroy all the nations that they will dispossess, warning them not to make any treaties with them or to intermarry, lest they be led astray to serve other gods. God also reassures the Israelites of his love for them and his choice of them as his special people, not because of their numerical strength, but because of his faithfulness to the covenant made with their ancestors. Well, whether you're tuning in over the air, through the KFUO app on your phone or online at kfuo.org, maybe you listen as a podcast or through a smart speaker. Hey, it doesn't matter to me how you're here. I'm just so thankful that you're joining us. You're the reason we're here. So settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. Learn more at lhfmissions.org. And if you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook at, uh, just search for Phil Boo. You can find me, send me a text or a, a friend request. Um, and you can usually call in, but today's pre-recorded, so no calling in today. Joining me this morning, it's the Reverend Bruce Tim. He's the pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Good morning, Pastor Tim, and welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Good morning, Pastor Boo. It's a pleasure to be here. I say welcome back because you were on the show before. It's been a couple of years, but you're brand new, at least on the show with me as a host. And so when that's the case, one of the things I like to do is invite you to share just a little bit about what God is doing through you and the saints there at Redeemer. Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, as little or as much as you'd like. Sure. Um, I'm actually almost uh, to the day, but 23 years ago, I moved to St. Cloud from uh, Canada. I grew up in Minnesota, but my, I served my first 12 years as a pastor in Lutheran Church Canada. Um, so I've been here quite a while. Um, wonderful, blessed congregation, kind of still in the, the midst of the city of St. Cloud and um, great group of saints here. Last year, we uh, hosted a vicar from the seminary. So that was something new to me. And I think it was a real blessing to the congregation. Um, I married four children, uh, three daughters who are married, and they're in the Twin Cities, uh, suburban 
Minneapolis, St. Paul. So they're close by. And uh, my son uh, lives locally here. Um, he's a patrol officer with the local police department, and he's engaged to be married this year. So all of that's great and exciting. And um, yeah, been really blessed here in St. Cloud among uh, the congregation here. Well, that's wonderful. It sounds like you got a lot of exciting things going on. I'm grateful for you to take the time to be with us today to open up Deuteronomy 7. Um, lots of, uh, you know, lots of challenging uh, topics in our text for today, especially to what we might consider modern sensibilities. I think it might right. be a good idea for us to start off with prayer, and then we'll dive right into the text. Would you lead right. us in that prayer? Sure. Lord God, Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us as we study your word this morning that you would enlighten us to see and believe the truth of your word. Help us always to interpret that word in light of Christ and his saving work. May we be faithful to what you have proclaimed and may our hearers have open ears and open hearts that your spirit might work in them to bring us to ever greater faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, is, is there, I usually like to ask, is there anything that you want to lay the groundwork for? Like, do you want to sum up a little bit in case people haven't been listening and maybe they're just tuning in today? You know, what has happened so far to get us to where we are right now? Well, I think, and... Um, my, my vicar used to joke that I saw marriage on every page of Holy Scripture. And, and I think it's one of the helpful ways to look at Deuteronomy. Um, certainly, it's an Old Testament theme that the Lord, uh, Yahweh, is the husband, and Israel is his bride. And, and Deuteronomy, uh, you know, the second giving of the law, but you could really say it's like a renewal of of wedding vows. I mean, the, the Lord and his people have been together, um, you know, since the call of Abraham, but now he's brought them out of Egypt. And um, before they enter into the promised land, and again, using the marriage language there, he's about to take them over the threshold into the land he promised. And um, it's important because um, as you said in the introduction, this chapter contains some, some difficult things for our modern sensibilities. Um, but if, if you perhaps look at it um, like the vows of marriage, that God has loved his Israel and has promised her his faithfulness and has already demonstrated um, his love and grace um, that there does come with vows, and it's it is reciprocal. Um, that just like when you're married, um, there's responsibility along with those vows, and I think that's one helpful way to look at it. Um, the, the gospel side of it, also, um, and we don't probably like the term, um, but. The Lord does command them in a way uh, in this chapter to uh, enact a holy war. And when we hear language like that, which is, you know, offensive to our modern ears, but we know 
as the New Testament church, we are in a spiritual battle, and we always need to remember that's not against people, um, as it was in the Old Testament, as Israel was sort of a nation, state, church, all in one, um, but against the principalities and powers. So as we hear these words, um, you know, just think of how strident our fight needs to be um, uh, against those things which would take us away from Christ, and how I think most of our listeners would believe that there are many enemies arrayed against the church, against Christ, and against our faith, and that we are in a battle every day. Um, and so that's hopefully, you know, we can learn from this chapter about some of the reasons why that is and, and, and what we need to do. All right. Well, let's let's look into that, because as you said, you know, we're going to have to both examine what's going on on the on the ground during this time. But also, you know, Scripture still speaks to us. So we're going to see what it means for us today. I'm going to read starting with verse one in chapter seven. I'll go to oh, I guess I'll go down to verse five. That seems to be where the editors of the ESV make the break. So that's where I will, too. Here we go. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when Yahweh your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Yahweh would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Yeah, so we we have seven nations representing all the sort of evil nations in Canaan. And uh, yeah, it, it's pretty clear. You're supposed to go in there and wipe them out. Yeah, it's um, some pretty harsh language to our ears. Um, although I think you can make some connections here, you know, doing a little studying that... Um, somewhat goes back to the flood and when, uh, you know, a little bit of that obscurity about when the sons of God, you know, were intermarrying um, with the, the, the children of the Anakin, and then the flood came, and uh, all of these nations uh, listed here, I think with the exception of one, can be traced back uh, to Noah's son Ham, who was cursed uh, and so there's, you know, there's enemies to God's people, uh, and, uh, you know, you don't want to give the enemy any ground. You don't want to give the enemy any space. And so the Lord is discouraging, you know, or encouraging them. I think the other thing to remember is when you 
read these first verses, you see the Lord, you know, it all starts with him. Um, the Lord your God brings you into the land. Um, he will give them over to you. And then, then comes, in Lutheran terms, we talk about this as the third use of the law, uh, but he has been doing all the work. And because of that, because of his love and his giving, um, and he's expecting love in return. And that's a, uh, you know, not, not like a slave and master, but more of a, a, feel, a, a filial or familial love, if you will, like the love of a son to a father, or in this case, like I began today, like the love of a wife to her husband. And maybe using that analogy, and this may be a little, but you know, um, <laughs> how much adultery could you tolerate in a marriage? Think about that. I mean, and that's the relationship God is talking about here. So when it comes down to that between a husband and wife, I, I, I would certainly hope, I don't, I don't think a marriage can tolerate adultery. And, um, and so there, there can be none. And that might be a helpful illustration to understand these words. Yeah, God makes it clear that he is a jealous God. Jealous in the sense, uh, well, just what it means, and that is that he does not want um, to share you with other gods or so-called gods, we might say. And, and you're absolutely right. We can trace back the enmity between the people here of Israel and these enemies going back in history. Um, even then, of course, people will argue that, you know, again, we talked about modern sensibilities. But one thing I think folks need to remember, too, is that God is holy. He is completely good. He cannot do evil. So if God does it, then it's good. <laughs> if he commands it, it's good. We don't, we, don't ha we don't sit on the throne and we don't sit as a judge saying, well, let's look here. Let's see if God's doing good or not. It doesn't matter. If he does it, it's good. And God can order things and do things in a way that is good that if we were to take them upon ourselves to do would be evil because of intentionality. Um, I, I recently had a discussion with this with someone, and we were talking about we were talking about actually Saul and God sending an evil spirit to torment Saul. And, you know, it's like, well, is God sending this evil? And is he the author of evil? And it's like, well, no. And I'm not going to get into the details of that. But I would say that, you know, if we look out in the world and we say, listen, if you if you were a, a, an observer that had nothing to do, had no knowledge of surgery, and you were to see a man or a woman, a surgeon, cutting into the, the belly of a, of a child, you might say, look, he's harming her. But we know that that harm is for the purpose of healing. And so when God looks at this, he's not looking at it as, as just, you know, this sort of I'm going to get vengeance. He's looking at it in terms of the whole plan. He knows the hearts of these people. He knows um, their disposition. He knows their history. And he also knows, well, what will happen if they aren't completely destroyed? And spoiler alert, right, brother? They, did, they weren't completely destroyed. And, and what right. God said would happen is exactly what happened. Right. It's interesting that um, when you look at verses three and four, um, you know, if, if they did what he said in verse two, then why does he need to give them the command in verse three 
you shall not intermarry with them, <laughs> giving right. your sons, daughters to their sons. So it's, um, it's you know, and, and I don't know, because as you said, God is good and he, he doesn't always let us in on his holy counsels, but it's a question you would have to ask, is he anticipating that they will not have it in them to completely destroy the people? Um, that, you know, because if they did as he commanded, there would be no reason to instruct them not to intermarry. Um, and and yeah, there were different... Kind of interesting, isn't it? And I think, you know, just reading a bit, there, there were differences like when, you know, uh, when they destroyed people, I mean, sometimes they destroyed only the men, sometimes they, you know, allowed the women and children, and sometimes, but, but here it certainly seems that God is asking them, you know, there's no doubt you must devote them to complete destruction. It's, it's kind of one of those repetitive Hebrew, uh, Hebraisms of, you know, it, it's it's the word to devote to God, but it means you know devotingly devote. I mean, and it, it has to say there's no there's no question. I mean, that's why the ESV translates it to complete destruction. He is asking his people to give them entirely over to him, as you said before. You know, this is very reminiscent of the giving of the commandments where he speaks about his, you know, it all begins first commandment stuff, and he speaks of his jealousy, his salvific work, and he just, he doesn't want anything, you know, to take his people away from him. Well, and and that's one of the things I think we have to keep in mind during this whole thing is that God knows exactly the outcomes of all of this. As you said, you know, he he already anticipates even in the command that this isn't going to completely happen. And so he he makes them understand that essentially when you don't do this, even though I'm commanding you to do it, listen, this is why. Don't be marrying in, don't do any of that. Now, these particular nations, many of them survive. I'm always reminded of the story of the event in the New Testament with the Canaanite woman, right, who comes to, comes to Jesus. And she, and she says, she says, uh, she calls him son of David, which, you know, indicates that she knows that she really is only there because of a failure to wipe out her people. And yet, despite being from a people that are the enemies of God's people, she still goes to Christ, and that's the great faith that Jesus points out in her, that she should have expected nothing from the son of David except destruction for him to finish up what his people didn't, and yet God does show mercy. So we see this language of don't show them mercy, but as you already pointed out, you know the, we're going to see mercy in Christ. Yes, yeah, and I think that's a, that's a good point. Um, I know in reading a little bit of Luther on this uh, on this text, you know he he looked at it that way that um, that there would be a time and that God Himself wanted to you know would we know New Testament and even in the Old Testament would would open up the kingdom um, to and uh, to to the nations and even in the in the line of Jesus you know. Um, uh, they're not listed here, but, you know, Ruth was a Moabite. 
um, uh, Rahab wasn't one of God's people. And th- those women all ended up being in the line of Jesus and believers. So the only thing I want to touch on before we move on to the next part is it's kind of funny because we have verse five and, and he tells them exactly how he needs, they need to deal with these, these false God worshipers. He says, you shall break down their altars, dash into pieces their pillars and chop down their Asherim. You know, Asherim were these uh, folks at home were these representations of the goddess Asherah or Asherah, uh, basically the female version of Baal is the simplest way to put it and burn their carved images with fire. Now, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I, I had an episode, and I do encourage folks to check that out. Uh, it was uh, February 2nd, I think. We, uh, we, I had uh, Dr. Joel Bierman on, and we talked about Christians in the political square. And I mentioned very briefly this uh, story in the Iowa State Capitol where a man in his fervent Christian, <laughs> you know, uh, his, his fervent Christian zealousness, um, destroyed part of an uh, display erected to Satan, or I should say by the satanic temple who they themselves claim aren't religious. But in any case, that's not what we're called to do today though, right? I mean, we're not to go out and destroy and chop down the Asherim or, or frankly, even the satanic state statues in the state capitals. We have a different relationship with the world than these folks did. And I wanted to, wanted you to sort of speak on that. They were a, a a, you know, a theocracy. And whereas we operate uh, in the, in the churchly realm, go ahead. Right. I think that's, that's a good distinction. I mean, we always have this challenge of the, the old Testament laws. Some of them were civic, some of them were ceremonial, some of them were moral and um, you know, the moral laws forever. um, But the, the ceremonial and civic um, even, you know, like, rites of circumcision, uh, sacrifices in the temple, which were certainly ceremonial. They, they end with Christ, the Sabbath, and, and of course, Israel as a, as a, a state, I mean, a people uh, with God as their king until they wanted their own king. So they, they had laws that governed their civic life. I, I think another, um, and I, I read this um, in a source last week in an unrelated not related to Deuteronomy 7, but as I was thinking about being on with you. And and I don't know if we've ever, like, you know, if this meets the Lutheran standard, but I thought it was kind of interesting. The author was talking about a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament that, um, and it had to do with uh, uh, the difference um, between um, in the Old Testament, this author stated unholiness was contagious, and in the New Testament, holiness becomes contagious. And he argued that in the Old Testament, the people were on the defensive; that they, you know, they had they had to worry about. And, and I'm not saying we don't have to worry about unholiness now. Um, but so they were really, and, and you look at this, they are defending themselves from losing what God has given them. And, and because they're a nation, um, that also lives itself out. But now we think about the New Testament and, and how the kingdom of God has spread because holiness has spread. And, and we know it's, um, you know, in our, uh, my church here, we use the one-year lectionary, so yesterday, um, or Monday, Sunday, 
uh, was uh, Sexagesima, and it's the parable of the sower. And, you know, one of the mysteries about the kingdom of God is it doesn't come by force. And this little planted seed of the word of God of Jesus Christ I produces a yield a hundredfold. And I thought it was an interesting distinction. I think it's something we could use in a sermon or in teaching Bible study. But but now we use the gospel. Now we use this great news of Jesus Christ. And, and we can see, you know, in the 2,000 years that have passed, how um, holiness, you know, the gospel, the gifts of Christ have overcome evil in you know and we speak about that individually in each of us converting us from sinners um, rebellious sinners into the children of God through our baptisms um, but also then in our desire to do what's pleasing to God so I think that's another um, if you will another lesson to keep in mind about the difference and and if you will even, the weaponry um, that God has given us. And it is, in a real way, the, the folly of his kingdom, that it's not by scheming and war and, and you know, battles that way, but by the power of his word, um, changing hearts, you know, not just externally eliminating evil, but actually changing us sinners into righteous and holy people. Well, speaking of righteous and holy people, that's pretty much where the text takes us when he now switches gears. Not really, but he changes this focus to why they have been set apart by God. And that's what we're going to talk about when we return from our break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. In just a few moments when we return, Pastor Tim and I will continue our discussion of Deuteronomy 7. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today, it's the Reverend Bruce Tim. He's the pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Folks, don't forget, you can reach out to me at pastorboo at gmail.com or on Facebook with your questions, comments, and more. And when we're live, which unfortunately isn't today, you can call in with your comments and questions at 1-800-730-2727. All right, brother, heading back into the text. You ready to add some more verses to the conversation? Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's start with verse 6. For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So I, I think this little passage here, I ended with verse 11, really speaks to this fear of the Lord in its truest sense. You know, we, we have in the New Testament even, right? Don't fear those who can put your, you know, can harm the body today, but, but he who can put you both body and soul in hell. God says, if you hate me, you will reap the rewards of that hate. And so this really ties into something that perhaps the audience doesn't know completely when we read this text, but you alluded to it already. But these are people who have hardened their hearts against God and set themselves as his enemy. And to do that and expect that there will be no recompense is not realistic back then, now, or in the future. Right. Um, it is a, you know, a, a passage that is wonderful gospel uh, in all that the Lord does, you know, and, and tells his Israel, you know, I didn't choose you because you were great. I didn't choose you because you were numerous. You know, you're really not, especially compared to the nations. You know, these nations were powerful. They were mighty. They were known. You know, they might have had a lot going for them, but God, you know, chose Israel. Um, but then, like, that's the great gospel. But then, as you said, to reject that gospel, to harden your hearts against the Lord. Um, and we know from these books of Moses that the nations had heard of the mighty things that the Lord had done. Um, for his Israel, and um, he struck a fear in them uh, because of that. And I think that goes back to a little something I mentioned briefly before, but, um, you know, God would not have us be afraid. You know, this fear is, is a, you know, perhaps the best way to describe it, like, um, in a good way, like a father and a son. I mean, a son who uh, fears his father, fears displeasing him. He loves him and he wants to do what's pleasing to his father, um, not, not sort of the, the master slave and, and, you know, that God is a tyrant. And I think that, that often is how uh, people who harden their hearts against the Lord look on him. Um, you know, again, think of some of the parables uh, you know, like the, the parable where the, the master gives his servants some talents and the servant hid it in the ground and, and you know, he was afraid of how the master, and, and the master rebukes him for that um, because he does not know him. He imagines him to be somebody else. And so there are consequences for rejecting um, this gospel the grace of the Lord, the hardening of the heart. Uh, this leads to, 
to judgment. Um, uh, just pushing back on the notion just a little bit, only because it's a one that I've thought deeply about, is I think that we've domesticated God too much, though. And every time we talk about the fear of the Lord by saying, well, it, it really just means awe and, and respect, or we do the, well, you know, there's the slave-like fear, and then there's the childlike fear. And not that any of those ideas are incorrect, but God is wiping out an entire people. That is something that is not just, right. well, I'd really be hate to disappoint him. He's saying, I'm wanting you to go out and completely destroy seven nations from the face of the earth and look at that as an example that if you do not be careful to do the commandments and the statutes that I do you today, remember that I will repay to their face those who hate me by destroying them. So while in Christ we certainly see God as our Father and have access to him as our Father, I would also just be cautious that we don't domesticate God so much where everybody goes, oh, well, every time it says fear, it just means awe. So let's not worry right. about it. I'm sure you agree with that. Yes, I, I think it's it's um I, I think that's a very important point to remember is that you know, we should fear losing his love, fear his anger. Um uh as you know, throughout the old and new testament, there are serious consequences to that. I'm I'm trying to think of like uh, um, C.S. Lewis with the, the Tales of Narnia, and I can't remember which of the children asked. Well, something about, you know, is is Aslan safe? And it alludes to what you said earlier about the goodness of God. You know, by no means he's he's not safe. He's not a tame lion, but he's a good lion, and and that kind of fits in with your your also your phrase of you know we domesticate God we you know, we make him a, 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 out to be a Labrador when, you know, if you reject him, he's probably going to be more like a pit bull. Uh, <laughs> so I agree that. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, that ability to be in a relationship with God, whereby he is our father and we love him obviously only comes through faith. Right. But yeah, we, but you know, unfortunately I think this is why we have like this fatherly depictions, or I should say grandfatherly depictions of him in art, some old friendly guy in the sky and he's just looking down and that's sort of that domestication. But at the same time, I don't, I certainly don't disagree with you because, you know, through faith and you mentioned third use already, we then are equipped to follow God's will. And so when he says, be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today, he means it. But we know, especially this side of Christ coming and the sending of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't leave us to our own devices to have to keep those perfectly lest we die, but rather he's kept them perfectly on our behalf and equips us to do them in response to that faith he's given. Uh, I know I'm preaching the choir to you, but just for folks at home so you so everybody understands what I'm yeah, saying. And, and the danger, as you said, I mean, really comes you know, if we would kind of do a lot of, well, and you could do a lot of Lutheran distinctions with this chapter, but, you know, people joke about how we Lutherans are weak on sanctification, and we're probably weak on sanctification because we don't preach that fear of the Lord. Like, this can be lost, that this is not, you know, this is not cheap grace, that God's just going to stick with you no matter what. Um, and so it, I, I, I like your points because I think it really plays into the, you know, the, the, the harshness that these words, which God directs his people to do 
are precisely because he is a holy and just God and does not and cannot, because of his own character, cannot tolerate unholiness. And that, you know, should make us fear our own sins greatly. Um, You know, that it's just not, oh, you know, kind of this, I don't know, your word domesticated, but this nice, nice grandfather guy in the sky, you know, oh, that's okay. I, it doesn't bother. Well, it does. It's not okay. Christ died for your sins. God is holy and just. He has given this to you. Um, If you believe that and, you know, if, if that's your hope, and it, it should be, you know, and, and it, like I said, there's wonderful gospel here. I chose you. I, I saved you. I did this. Well, then there is then, um, if you will, a consequence for your own life because of that love and that change he has worked in you. And the theme of God being the actor or the equipper, you know, it's going to continue in this chapter. In fact, in these next verses, we'll see the benefits of having been chosen by God, which is also an important distinction for us today when we think about how one becomes saved or becomes a believer or is justified. You know, those things are a gift of God. So we don't go around giving our hearts to Jesus like I grew up to understand. So we see here that he is the actor, and he's going to explain, I guess, the benefits of following his will. Let's look at 12 and following. Here we go. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, Yahweh your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples, There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And Yahweh will take away from you all sickness. And none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you. But he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that Yahweh your God will give over to you. Your eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Now, that's the end of 16. The interesting part about this to me is that God seemingly, not seemingly, I think explicitly, is connecting their obedience to their blessings. And we know both from scripture and history that most of this didn't happen. They didn't have, they had women who were barren. They, they didn't, they had diseases. They, their livestock wasn't always great. Um, How do we reconcile that with the understanding that our relationship with God isn't supposed to be Uh, sort of transactional, but it certainly sounds like that here. Well, there certainly um, are blessings in doing what the Lord commands. Um, You you could all, and boy, that sounds, now it's going to sound dangerous, but you could almost separate that from the grace of God. I don't recommend that you do, but think if you keep the second table of the law. You know, honor your honor your father and mother, honor authorities, you know, respect the life of your neighbor, um, have sex only in marriage, all of that. You're, you are, there, there are blessings to that obedience. And even when we think, although we don't talk about it too much, uh, came up in one of the readings on Sunday, um, but even, you know, in the New Testament, how 
God promises, you know, that your works will, will follow you. Um, the works you do here on earth will follow you um, into the resurrection and life. So, um, but we always have to remember that there is no blessing apart from God's mercy. Um, you know, the blessings of the gifts of justification that Christ's forgiveness, his life, um, our resurrection, eternity, that's all his doing. And um, even when he changes our heart, which is all his work, even when he converts us, saves us, brings us to faith through baptism, the good works we do, again, to him alone goes the glory. Uh, so the blessings um, are all from him. And I'll be honest, I don't, I don't know that I have a great answer for why, you know, it is God's promises. Maybe, you know, and again, I'm, I'm speculating here that these are the, maybe the eschatological promises, the promises of ultimately being completed in Christ and then in us on the last day. But no, I, I absolutely <clears throat> uh, agree with you in regards to this idea that when you do things the way God wants you to do them, they're just going to go better. <laughs> uh, I guess sans persecution. Now, when you enter persecution, the more you follow God, the more the world will persecute you. But if everyone were to follow God's simple commands, and they really are simple, and we're not talking about all those legal or uh, civic demands that you were mentioning earlier in the show— but when you follow the moral law, he's the manufacturer, right? He designed you. He manufactured you. He knows how you're supposed to operate in its optimum conditions. So things just tend to go better. So I wholly agree with you that he he is saying that if you keep these things, my blessings are going to keep on coming. And, and it's not because I'm throwing you a bone, but because I know what's good for you. Now, you know, we get that in Jesus too. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. But, of course, we don't just have these verses out of their context. We know wholeheartedly that we aren't even able to keep his commandments perfectly, frankly, before he comes back in glory and purifies us. But, but you really don't have much of a hope at all outside of faith. And even those who do good things outside of faith, and plenty of people do, that's still God working through them, right? So God's the one who's working through us. And, and that's the focus, I think, of this chapter, that, that God is the one doing the work. So just to kind of follow up on that, mm -hmm. um, if I, um, and you, you mentioned it kind of at the, at the outset of our discussion on these particular verses, that uh, in a way, uh, well, I don't know, I shouldn't say that in a way, but God does promise them all these things. And, and there is a contingency there if you do this then, and it could be just as simple as, well, they didn't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, 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 you know, if, if, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, these things lead us to confess, I have not loved the Lord as I should. And, and our only hope then is his mercy. I mean, in some sense, there's a danger of trying to explain this away. Why didn't it happen when the answer is obvious? Well, they didn't, <laughs> you know, and, and if you would say, well, why doesn't God bless me because I'm doing his will? The answer might be, well, no, you're not. 
um, <laughs> that, you know, no, no one is perfect. No one's right. sanctification, this side of eternity is going to be complete. Um, you know, or we rely on, on Christ. And, yeah, and even as we talk about the perceived brutality of what God has uh, declared against these people, you know, we have to remember, too, that, um, yeah, God knows our hearts better than we do. And as we look at God's commands, he's working all things to the good of those who love him. And this, and this, this whole chapter is talking of really about the sovereignty of God. He is the one who owns all the land. He has decided to give it from his enemies to his people. All of that's within his purview. And, uh, and he does that, and he sends them to do it. But yes, there is, there, there is no perfection in any of us, only in Christ. And then, of course, when he returns and glorifies us. Let's uh, keep on going, though, because the theme then of this idea of, well, I don't know that we can, he's anticipating that they're going to be worried about these large nations. And so he addresses that in 17 through the rest of the chapter. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what Yahweh your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which Yahweh your God brought you out, so will Yahweh your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, Yahweh your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for Yahweh your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Yahweh your God will clear away these nations from before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But Yahweh your God will give them over to you and throw them into the great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to Yahweh your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to its destruction like it. Or sorry. <laughs> uh, and you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. All right, sorry. That's the end of the chapter. Now, even at that end, we already know that at least one family does exactly what he tells them not to. Uh, that's a story for a, from a different episode. But yeah, I mean, we know that they're not going to obey these things, and yet God not only is telling them now that he's with them, but we know that even sin after sin, rebellion after rebellion, does God does continue to call them back. That really shows the mercy of God. Yes, and I think it also, um, as I read these verses through, um, especially verse 17, I, I think this little section can be of such comfort to us um, who see uh, so many forces. I mean, we would even say, you know, some of the beloved institutions of our land, the, the gifts of God, uh, uh, set against the church. And, you know, how how can I dispossess them? Well, look at the history of Israel. I mean, they, they were, you know, as God said, you're not, you're not a great nation. You, do, you don't outnumber them. 
but then, you know, read the scriptures and how God, you know, it wasn't their strength. It was him working through them. You know, Old Testament, you got like Gideon and the Midianites, you got David and Goliath, but then, you know, you get in the New Testament, study the history of the church, um, and I haven't, uh, but you know, the he's going to 12 apostles against the world. And, and yet, you know, by the end of Acts, I mean, Paul's in Rome, and the gospel is going out, and, you know, and it's spread, and, you know, eventually, and, you know, do with it what you will, but Constantine declares the Roman Empire Christian, and, you know, likely our ancestors were, you know, pagan barbarians up in Europe, and the gospel came to them, and, you know, the church, you know, 2,000 years later, you know, or even look back in the Old Testament, I mean, you know, where are the Canaanites now? You know, but the church is here. You know, where's the Roman Empire now? Well, Christ is here, still ruling his church. And we we should be confident of what the gospel can do. Um, and, and I think that's also a very comforting message from these passages. I always marvel uh, reading about Martin Luther and how, you know, he, he was so optimistic about the, what the word could accomplish. You know, it was kind of like, you know, if I put it in my own words, you know, if I could just sit down with the Pope and talk to him, it, he would be converted by the word. <laughs> and, you know, and, and you look back on the history and go like, are you crazy, Luther? And he would say, <laughs> well, no, I'm confident that the word of God, that God, what he says he does, and he can do this. And, you know, it's sometimes, you know, we, you know, it, we, we, uh, we just, we don't think the word is as strong and powerful as it is. And so we, we should just stand up and speak it and confess it because the, the Lord did it in spite of the weaknesses of his people. Yeah, the, the word certainly has power because, of course, it's God exercising his power through that word. The Holy Spirit works when and where he pleases, too. You know, we, we look at it kind of reminds me, the, the example you gave reminds me of Paul, who earnestly believed that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime. At least that's what the scriptures suggest. And the people around him believe that, yeah, they're, they're, Jesus is coming back really any day now. And of course, now we've had 2,000 years to try to explain that away, so to speak. Well, Luther also believing rightly that the Pope could just be convinced by the word because God works through the word. That's true. But of course, the Pope wasn't um, and had access to the word. And, and, and many popes after him have continued. In the same way, there are Christians out there who say, well, I go and I, I tell people about Jesus and they're just confused on why they don't just respond. Right. Or I raised up my child in the way he should go, but he did depart right. from it. These kinds of things are, are a struggle to us. But I think it's because Lutherans also don't have a great... Um, catechesis on the sovereignty of God. Maybe it's out of fear of sounding Calvinistic, but there really is this idea that God, that God works winning where he pleases. That's certainly a phrase we use all the time. And so while God certainly, as we confess rightly, unlike our Calvinist friends, um, while he certainly um, can work through his word, his grace is not irresistible. It is resistible. Right. 
And, and Luther's frustration extended to the Jews. Luther's famous for having some uh, polemics that he wrote against the Jews, which especially in today's light seem really bad. And even back then, they probably weren't great. But is also out of a frustration that he genuinely thought that once they got the free gospel, they would just all convert in mass, and they didn't. Yeah. So I think it's very important to keep both of those uh, truths in mind that we we dare not lose confidence in the word because it does miraculously take hold. But we are also not privy, as you said, to the uh, the sovereignty of God, to his design, to his working of good in the world. When we see something that we would deem bad, we do we don't know his divine wisdom and counsel um, and what he is at work doing. Um, but we keep these things, you know, it's faith, you know, in the strength of God's word that led Luther to believe that. We we dare not lose that, but then also understanding how how God in his sovereignty does work. Well, it has been great wrestling with this text with you this morning. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Any last comments you want to make before we wrap up the show? Well, it's always a delight to, um, as a pastor, to take, I mean, over the last couple of weeks since I knew I was going to be on the show, just read this, wrestle with it, and and really meditate. And I would encourage our hearers, you know, sometimes— um, and I'm one of those. I mean, I want to read the Bible through each year, um, but it's really a delight, you know, to just kind of hunker down on a one uh, chunk of Scripture. Now I'm talking food, but to to meditate, to chew it, to inwardly digest it, and then of course uh, the joy of being with you on this show, and then chewing it over with another uh, brother in Christ or in your home chewing it over as a family. I think this is what God would have us do with his word um, and learn from it. And also, obviously, at times, even even as pastors, to to bend our knee and just say, you know, I'm, I'm going to go with the clear words of Scripture. I don't understand everything that's going on in this or what this means, but uh, we certainly can see a lot of God's goodness, his jealousy, his grace, and also his law and his justness and his holiness in this chapter. So it's been a great time to study with you and, and to discuss this, and hopefully it's been a benefit to those who heard us this morning. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Bruce Tim. He's the pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Once again, brother, thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. Tomorrow, I'll have the Reverend David Boysclare on the show as we move into Chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8 serves as a reminder to the Israelites of God's guidance and provision during their 40 years in the wilderness. It emphasizes the importance of humility and obedience and reliance upon God. Moses then warns them not to forget God once they enter the promised land and they start to experience its abundance. He stresses that any wealth and prosperity they have comes from God. Moses cautions against pride and forgetting God and underscores the necessity of keeping God's commandments to ensure their prosperity and longevity in the land they are about to possess. That and a whole lot more tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.
Showing support for KFUO is now easier than ever. You can sport a KFUO shirt, swag, or even socks by visiting our online store. Go to kfuo.org slash store and order high-quality KFUO-branded merch. You no longer need to wait for our annual share for a chance to show your KFUO spirit. Visually share and wear this ministry out in the world by checking out our selection. Every purchase helps to support our proclamation of Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Go to kfuo.org slash store.